0: Romans chapter 8, very advantageous to think I'm going to get through uh, 18 through 30 today, Uh, so probably don't count on it, but we're going to see what we can do. Uh, As we get into this section, as we wonder why, Uh, why, why are things the way that they are? Why are things happening? And the way that they're happening. Why is there so much struggle and so much suffering in this world? If you've ever had a preschooler or a young kid, they, they go through the why stage. Do you remember the why stage? And so you'll be like, hey, it's time to brush your teeth. Why? Because it's time to go to bed. Why? Well, we brush our teeth before we go to bed. Why? Because we want our teeth to be healthy. Why? Because we want to be able to chew our food without our teeth falling out. Why? Just go brush your teeth, right? Like that's just, it's kind of why, why? Well, a lot of us, we have a lot of why questions when it comes to why is this happening? Why is there suffering? Why is there cancer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, Uh, why, why? As my wife and I were um, in the car yesterday, we received news of a friend of ours who passed away and left behind a family. And you just kind of have those moments of why wow, they were so they were so young, and um, you just wonder why. Well, I think Paul gets into a section of scripture here where we can see why why they're suffering. So, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read 18 through 30. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time, are not worthy of comparing with the glory For we do not know what we ought to pray for for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, beginning your word today, we ask, Lord, that you would give us direction. You would give us clarity. And by your Spirit, you would lead us into all truth. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we are not alone, that we have a hope. I hope that you're in control of all things, that you're working all things out to your plan and for your glory. And so, Father, we just rest in that when we have why questions. Father, if there's someone here today who is wrestling with a why question, I pray that your spirit would intercede for them with groanings. that would pray on their behalf and that it would minister to their soul and give them peace. In Christ's name, amen. I've got good news, believer. As we've gone through this chapter, we've spent two weeks talking about, I've got good news, I've got good news, I've got good news. So I've got good news. Salvation is God's work in the life of a sinner by the means of justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so the good news is is that God is at work in all three of these. So justification, as we saw in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, This is the idea that there has been a declaration that has been made that God has made on your behalf. And so as John Piper puts it, justification is the act of God by which he declares us to be just or righteous or perfect. Because by faith alone, we have been united to Jesus Christ, who is perfect, who is just, who is righteous. So justification is a legal standing before God owing to a spiritual union with Jesus, which is owing to faith alone. You don't work yourself into or perform your way into this standing with God. He declares you to be perfect because of your union with Christ. And that happens by faith alone. At the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, there is a declaration that is made by God on our behalf that we are just. And so we can stand before him knowing that we have been covered by the blood of the lamb and we are no longer guilty, but we are seen as free. And so there's this declaration that is made. And then that leads into a life of sanctification. Now, sanctification is what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And so sanctification is, we see in Romans 8, verses 12 through 14. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So now we move into this. I've got good news, you've got it you got a new status, and you have a new standard. You have a new spirit that is going to help you along the way. And you have a new sonship. You're adopted as sons of God. So now we don't live according to the flesh. We live according to the spirit. But yet we still live in the flesh. So there's this battle of sanctification that goes on. So sanctification then is now the process that we find ourselves in as believers. Where God through his spirit and through his word is conforming us little by little more and more into the image of his son. And through that process there is suffering. There is pain. There's suffering in sanctification. But we know that it's leading towards a culmination of glorification. Romans eight thirty, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We realize that all of this is moving towards the final removal of all sin in the life of a saint. That we will one day have a new body. We will be with him in In heaven, And so all of these things will be wiped away that we're dealing with right now. And so we're longing for glorification. So that's the good news. But let me tell you about salvation as we get into these verses. Number one, salvation sets you on a path that doesn't save you from current suffering. It doesn't save you from current suffering. Now, we would love for that to be true. And there are some false teachers out there who will tell you health, wealth, and prosperity. And it's just not true. It doesn't remove you from your current sufferings. Suffering is, in fact, one of the number one reasons why people stop believing in God. Why would God allow this to happen? Well, how could a good God allow this to happen? How could a loving God allow this to happen? And so you have people like John Stuart Mill, who was a philosopher with skepticism. He said that if God is a God of love, yet he allows such pain and suffering, then he is powerless to prevent it and is nothing more than a divine weakling incapable of administering peace and justice. If, on the other hand, he has the power to prevent evil, but chooses not to, standing by and allowing it, then he may be be powerful, but he is not good and loving. The complaint Mill raised against historical Christianity is that either God is good, but not all powerful, or he is powerful, but he's not all good. This is the complaint that many have as they look at the world that we suffer in and we say, well, there is a loving and good God who's in control of all things. And if he's a loving and good God in control of all things, all powerful, then why is this happening? Our salvation puts us on a path, but that path does not remove us from current suffering. God sovereignly allows the world to, To be subjected to the suffering, realities, and ramifications of sin, so that we can see how gloriously infinite He is and how grossly insufficient we are. If it wasn't for the sin and the suffering of this world, we would not know how glorious God really is. And so we long for glorification. We long for God who created all things to glorify Him to bring all things back to Himself. We long for this, knowing that the question is answered in this why is there suffering in this world? because there's still sin in this world and though we are saved from the penalty of our sin we're not saved from the surrounding sins that are all in this world and how it has corrupted our lives and the world that we live in but one day we will be freed from its presence so since there is suffering let's look at it through a scriptural lens since the suffering problem is a sin problem, then we must see suffering through a scriptural lens. The first thing is to see suffering through comparison. He says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's really not even worth comparing. For I consider. This is the this is term, a, a, a word in the Greek that Paul has used over and over and over throughout Romans and it's an accounting term. We've we've talked about this before. And so it means that he's doing a numerical calculation. He's actually trying to reckon or compute or calculate or to weigh the options. If I put the weight of all the suffering that I'm dealing with now in comparison to the glory that I'm going to receive, it doesn't even compare. They don't add up. And so he's saying, look, let's just look at suffering that we have now and compare it to what's going to happen in glory. And there's really no comparison. And so you have to get to a point where you ask yourself, is the current suffering of my sanctification worth the future glory that I'm going to receive? Is the current suffering of my sanctification worth the glory that I'm going to receive? And he says, yes, as Tim Keller would put it, but is it worth it? Is the inheritance Christians have been given worth all the hardship and headache of living as a child of God in this life? Many people, including most likely some whom we know, answer no. They profess faith as Christians and seek to live God's way for a while, but in time, they find that their present sufferings are not worth it, and they fall away. But Paul answers the question with an emphatic yes. In fact, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. It's not even worthy of being compared. As he talks in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, listen, if you want to look at it through a biblical lens of comparison, what you're going through right now is a light momentary affliction. Now talk about comparing things like that. Like it seems like a pretty heavy weight when you're in the midst of suffering. Am I right? When, when you get bad news on the other end of the phone And when you are stuck in that moment where the whole world is caving in on you and everything is kind of getting darker and darker and darker because you have just now been received the worst news that you can imagine, you wouldn't say this is a light momentary affliction, would you? And so how could Paul say this? By comparison. The only thing I can do in this time is by comparison, view it in light of eternal glory. And there is no comparison when you do that. As Martin Luther said it, if we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day after The sentence has been pronounced not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. What Martin Luther says is when we really get to the comparison of all the suffering that we're going through, there's gonna be a moment when we see Christ face to face and we're gonna say, it was worth it. It was worth every single sacrifice and suffering that I endured because of this moment. There will not be one moment where you say in in face of Christ, ah, you know, I guess I should have sinned a little bit more. It's not gonna happen. Our sanctification is suffering, but it's worthy of what's going to happen in glorification. As Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5 through 8, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Some of the last words that he ever wrote, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We have something to look forward to. If salvation is God's work in the life of a believer, there is a justification. You're declared righteous. There's a sanctification. There's a process that we go through even in the suffering of this world that will one day culminate in glorification. And even Paul is saying, listen, I have poured my life out for the glory of God, and I'm going to receive an award that is beyond comparison. So how do we look at the sufferings of this world by comparison? Number two, we see suffering through creation. Verses 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the next way that we look at suffering with a biblical lens is through creation For the creation was subjected to futility. Here's the explanation. For, why is there suffering? Because all of creation has been subjected to futility. Futility of creation means that it is unable to reach the goal or achieve its purpose as it was designed to do so. So all of creation now has been subjected to not being able to fulfill its purpose as it was created to do so. And so now we see all of creation groaning in this this futility that it's been subjected to. It's like a curse has come upon the entire earth. This is what Isaiah said in 24.6. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. So there's a curse on all of creation, and now its inhabitants are suffering. So there is suffering that's taken place. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. So the answer to why is there suffering in this world is because there's sin. And sin entered the world through Adam. And this one man's sin has cursed all of creation. Dr. Henry Morris put it this way. Because of sin, the creation was made to operate under a law which specifies a universal process of decay and death. It is also called the law of increasing entropy, meaning turning inward or the secondary law of thermodynamics, right? You're familiar? You're familiar with that. Yeah, I know you've studied it. Every system in the physical and biological worlds have a tendency to turn inward and feed on itself to maintain its structure and activity, but this simply causes it to run down, degenerate and die unless it somehow becomes opened to an outside source of energy, information, food, etc. Even if it does remain an open system, this internal tendency continues to act in opposition to the incoming energy. Since even the latter will eventually be exhausted, the whole creation is thus in bondage to this principle of futility and vanity. But since the law has been imposed by God, he also can remove it. And so there's still hope. So here's what he says. This is what this really smart doctor says because I'm gonna have to dumb it down for myself. So, let me dumb it down. He says, listen, when sin entered the world, it then caused a curse of law to be put on all of creation. And so the curse of this law is this secondary law of therodynamics, which means everything is starting to eat itself. Everything is starting to decay. And and you know this. If you go without food, what does your body do? It begins to use all of its own nourishments and cells and all those things that I don't understand because I had two biology classes and that was it. So, this is what happens, it turns in on itself, it begins to eat itself. If you look at all of creation and you look at trees, if you look at animals, what do they do? They begin to deteriorate, they begin to, at one point, begin to turn in on themselves and eat themselves and decompose. This is the law that has been imposed on all of creation because of the sin of man, all right? So, if this is the case, then we have to feed ourselves. But at some point, you can't, you can't out feed yourself to overcome, decomposition. Our bodies are aging. Our bodies are getting older. We are are running out of energy no matter how much food we consume. We are now under a curse or a law that is causing all things to turn in on themselves. And here's what happens with sin. Sin causes you to turn in on yourself. Have you realized this? That when we sin, we begin to consume what we want what we think is best. And what we do is we actually begin to cause our own lives to disintegrate from inside out. And so we are, we are constantly battling this, the ramifications of the original sin. So four things I want you to see for us personally. Sin is not private. I, I said this last week, sin is not private. And the enemy wants us so badly to believe that it's private. He wants us to believe that you can get away with it, that it's no big deal, that no one saw it, that no one knows what you really did. It's not private. Just as throwing a rock into a lake will cause ripple effects all across that lake, your one sin is gonna have ripples and ramifications into the lives of many. We know this. All of creation was subjected to the ramifications of original sin. So the thing that Adam and Eve did caused all of creation to then be under this curse. Sin brings decay and death. Sin infects us not necessarily with an immediate death, but with one of a slow decay. And this is where the enemy is so crafty. When we think that our sin is private and we think we can get away with our sin, we think that because there's no immediate consequence when we think we got away with it. Oh, it, I got away with it. I, I, I might do it again. It's no big deal. And then we keep this secret. But what is happening is that secret that we're keeping is eating us from the inside out. Sin causes you to turn inward on yourself and to eat away at what God has intended in your life. And so sin causes you to turn inward and feed upon your own wants and desires that will ultimately exhaust you and bring you to utter ruin. Therefore, we need an outside source of incoming power and energy to free us from an inward spiral of ruin. We need the creator who created all things, who also gave the ramifications of sin to redeem us. We need the outside source. God is the giver of the repercussions of sin and the regenerator from sin. He is our outside power needed for regeneration. Therefore, there is absolutely no hope for anyone outside of Jesus Christ. Because this is what creation teaches us about suffering. That we're all turning inward. That we're all turning away from God. But we need Christ in us to regenerate us. Verse 22. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Childbirth. Now I can remember when we went through childbirth. I say we, right? (laughs) my hand was hurting when she was squeezing it, you know, like we went through that pain. I'm just kidding. Okay. So, um, childbirth, you know, that there's this pain that that's happening, but this pain has a purpose. You know, that there's going to be this glorious outcome that's going to come out of, out of the pain that you're going through. And I, am not speaking from personal knowledge, right? I'm just, I was just in the room. So As we read through this, we now have talked about all of this pain that we've been subjected to, all of this suffering that we've been subjected to, all of these things that have happened because of sin entering the world. But guess what? It's groaning with something greater in hand. All of creation is groaning, awaiting for all things to be made right. This means that every disease... Every natural disaster, every flood, every hurricane, every tornado, every tsunami, every volcanic eruption, every sickness that deteriorates the body, every painful struggle with cancer, every child born with a birth defect, every famine, every war, every case of abuse, and every murder is proof that our creation is groaning, that things are not the way that they should be, and it's longing for it to be made right. So as we look at suffering, we look at suffering through comparison. It's not even worthy of being compared to the glory that we're going to have when, when we're with Christ. We look at it through creation. All of creation is groaning, longing for things to be made right. We look at it through this, this idea that creation is looking forward to a new birth. As Isaiah says in eleven six 6 through 9, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy. In all my holy mountain, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. As Isaiah gives this prophecy, he talks about a time where all things are going to be made right. And as we get that picture, we get that picture in Revelation by John. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city. For the former things have passed away. As we look at the creation that is groaning, we see that it is groaning with a childbirth like pain that says, Listen, one day all things are going to be made right. And the suffering that we're enduring right now, even in our sanctification, He's going to wipe away every tear because there is going to be no more death. There's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be any more suffering. There's going to be glorification and all things will be the way He intended them to be. Isn't that amazing? Amen. Right? It's good. So how do you see suffering? You see it through comparison. You see it through what's happening in creation. And here's what you see. You see suffering through Christ. That God would put on flesh. That he would enter into a world that was fallen, that was in decay. And he himself would take the wounds and the punishment and the pain that we deserve. And he would suffer a criminal's death on a cross in our place. We see suffering through the lens of Christ. Verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. We are on the same course as all of creation. We are turning inwardly, and we are suffering knowing that one day that glorification is coming. So how do we see suffering? We see it through the suffering of Christ. That in the flesh, we see that suffering precedes glorification. Even in the life of Christ, we see this truth that suffering precedes glorification. As Peter would say in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever... Has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So suffering in sanctification, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that as Christ suffered and then reaches glorification, so will we suffer in our sanctification until we reach glorification. Next chapter, First Peter, 5:10 and after you've suffered a little while the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you listen after you've suffered for a little while god in all his grace will bring you into glory into eternal glory there will be a glorification that takes place for those who are in christ and as we read earlier second corinthians 4:17 this is how we can see that it is a light momentary affliction because in christ he has prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This awaits the believer. And we know this because we see the world groaning, we see the earth groaning, and we ourselves who have the Spirit are groaning. There's just something in us now, the Spirit of God, that tells us things are not the way that they should be. So the first fruits of the Spirit, first fruits. Throughout scripture is a biblical term that describes an offering of any kind. It represents the first portion of an offering that's set aside specifically for God. But it also means a first portion of the harvest, which is regarded both as a first installment and as a pledge of a final delivery of a whole. So as we have received the Spirit, we've been given a first installment of what is to come. And so now that we have the Spirit living within us, even though we live in a world full of suffering, there's something within us, the Spirit within us, that is groaning for what is to come because we have just the first fruits, the first installment, and we wait a final delivery. Epi Meyer said it this way, our bodies are owned by God, but they are not entirely redeemed. And if we should die before the Lord's advent, they will return to their mother earth. Possessed, but not redeemed. Hence, the apostle says that we are waiting for our re- adoption, the redemption of our body. We are under the sentence of corruption for Adam's sin, but we are to be redeemed. Salvation does not free us from a current suffering, but it causes us to groan, longing for the final installment. As 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Though there's suffering in this world, though there's sin in this world, we are awaiting the return of a Savior who will make all things right. Paul is telling us not only do we receive eternal life in the spirit, but we will be given new resurrected bodies when Christ returns. All things will be made right. Paul explains that the spirit of those who have died in Christ will return with him and their bodies will be resurrected and they will rise and be reunited with Christ. This is our hope. This is the assurance that we have as we look through the lens of suffering from a biblical point of view. I'm just simply not going to make it through the rest of the verses today. And so I want to close with this. Do you have assurance of your salvation? Do you have assurance? And the way you would know is not because you are without sin, because none of us in here are without sin it's because there's a spirit within us that testifies that through groanings, things are not the way they should be. And we can no longer live in the flesh because in the flesh, it turns in on itself and it ruins and decays everything in our life. And so we long to walk in the spirit. Do you long to walk in the spirit? Is there a spirit within you that is leading you and guiding you in that direction? If so, then I would tell you, in spite of the suffering, in spite of sin, in spite of the struggle of sanctification, to bow your knee and to give glory to God because the current suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that he has prepared for you. But if you don't know with assurance, if you don't have a check in your spirit that is groaning, then maybe today you bow your knee before him and say, I'm hopeless without you. My life has turned in on itself in sin and I I desperately need your spirit to come within me and be the first fruits as I await the full installment. Do you have salvation?